0: Chapter 39, Part 2 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. STRUGGLES AND TRIUMPHS OF P.T. BARNUM CHAPTER 39 THE AMERICAN MUSEUM IN RUINS PART 2 upon the same impulse which prompts men in time of fire to fling valuable looking glasses out of three-story windows and at the same time tenderly to lower down feather beds soon after the museum took fire a number of sturdy firemen rushed into the building to carry out the wax figures. There were thousands of valuable articles which might have been saved, if there had been less of solicitude displayed for the miserable effigies which are usually exhibited under the appellation of wax figures. As it was, a dozen firemen rushed into the apartment where the figures were kept, amid a multitude of crawling snakes, chattering monkeys, and escaped parakeets. The dying brigand was unceremoniously throttled and dragged toward the door. Liberties were taken with the tearful Senorita, who has so long knelt and so constantly wagged her doll's head at his side. The mules of the other bandits were upset, and they themselves roughly seized. The full-length statue of P.T. Barnum fell down of its own accord, as if disgusted with the whole affair. A red-shirted fireman seized with either hand Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan by their coat collars, Tucked the Prince Imperial of France under one arm and the veiled murderess under the other, and coolly departed for the street. Two ragged boys quarrelled over the tom thumb, but at length settled the controversy by one of them taking the head, the other satisfying himself with the legs below the knees. They evidently had Tom under their thumbs and intended to keep him down while a curiosity-seeking policeman was garroting benjamin franklin with the idea of abducting him a small monkey flung from the window sill by the strong hand of an impatient fireman made a straight dive hitting poor richard just below the waistcoat and passing through his stomach as the harlequin in the green monster pantomime ever pierced the picture with the slit in it, which always hangs so conveniently low and near. Patrick Henry had his teeth knocked out by a flying missile, and in carrying Daniel Lambert downstairs, he was found to be so large that they had to break off his head, in order to get him through the door. At length the heat became intense. The fidgers began to perspire freely, and swiftly approaching flames compelled all hands to desist from any further attempt at rescue. Throwing a parting glance behind as we passed down the stairs, we saw the remaining dignitaries in a strange plight. Someone had stuck a cigar in General Washington's mouth, and thus, with his chapeau crushed down over his eyes and his head reclining upon the ample lap of Mall Pitcher, the father of his country led the van of as sorty a band of patriots as not often comes within one's experience to see, General Marion was playing a dummy game of poker with General Lafayette. General Morris was having a set-two with Nathan Lane, and James Madison was executing a Dutch polka with Madame Roland on one arm and Lucretia Borga on the other. The next moment... The advancing flames compelled us to retire. We believe that all the living curiosities were saved, but the giant girl Anne Swan was only rescued with the utmost difficulty. There was not a door through which her bulky frame could obtain a passage. It was likewise feared that the stairs would break down even if she should reach them. Her best friend, the living skeleton, stood by her as long as he dared, but then deserted her, while as the heat grew in intensity, the perspiration rolled from her face in little brooks and rivulets, which pattered musically upon the floor. At length, as a last resort, The employees of the place procured a lofty derrick, which fortunately happened to be standing near, and erected it alongside the museum. A portion of the wall was then broken off on each side of the window. The strong tackle was got in readiness. The tall woman was made fast to one end and swung over the heads of the people in the street with eighteen men grasping the other extremity of the line, and lowered down from the third story amid enthusiastic applause. A carriage of extraordinary capacity was in readiness, and entered this the young lady was driven away to a hotel. When the surviving serpents that were released by the partial burning of the box in which they were confined, crept along the floor to the balcony of the museum and dropped on the sidewalk. The crowd, seized with St. Patrick's aversion to the reptiles, fled with such precipitate haste that they knocked each other down and trampled on one another in the most reckless and damaging manner. Hats were lost, coats torn, boots burst, and pantaloons dropped with magnificent miscellaneousness. And dozens of those who rose from the merry streets into which they had been thrown looked like the disembodied spirits of a mud bank. The snakes crawled on the sidewalk and into Broadway, where some of them died from injuries received, and others were dispatched by the excited populace. Several of the serpents of the copperhead species escaped the fury of the tumultuous masses, and true to their instincts, sought shelter in the world and news offices. A large black bear escaped from the burning museum into Ann Street, and then made his way into Nassau, and down that thoroughfare into Wall, where his appearance caused a sensation. Some superstitious persons believed him. The spirit of a departed Ursula Major and others of his fraternity welcomed the animal as a favorable omen. The bear walked quietly along to the custom house, ascended the steps of the building, and became bewildered, as many a biped bear had done before him. He seemed to lose his sense of vision, and no doubt, endeavoring to operate for a fall, walked over the side of the steps and broke his neck. He succeeded in his object, but it cost him dearly. The appearance of Bruin in the street sensibly affected the stock market, and shares fell rapidly, but when he lost his life in the careless manner we have described, shares advanced again, and the bulls triumphed once more. Broadway and its crossings have not witnessed a denser throng for months than assembled at the fire yesterday. Barnum's was always popular, but it never drew so vast a crowd before. There must have been 40,000 people on Broadway between Maiden Lane and Chamber Street, and a great portion stayed there until dusk. So great was the concourse of people that it was with difficulty pedestrians or vehicles could pass. After the fire, several high art epicures grouping among the ruins found choice morsels of boiled whale, roasted kangaroo, and fricasseed crocodile, which, it is said, they relished, though the many would have failed to appreciate such rare edibles probably the recherche epicures will declare the only true way to prepare those meats is to cook them in a museum wrapped in flames in the same manner that the chinese according to charles lamb first discovered roast pig in a burning house and ever afterward set a house on fire with a pig inside, when they wanted that particular food. All the New York journals, and many more in other cities, editorially expressed their sympathy with my misfortune, and their sense of the loss the community had sustained in the destruction of the American Museum. The following editorial is from the New York Tribune of July Fourteenth, 1865. The destruction of no building in this city could have caused so much excitement and so much regret as that of Barnum's Museum. The collection of curiosities was very large, and though many of them may not have had much intrinsic or memorial value, a considerable portion was certainly of great worth for any museum but aside from this pleasant memories clustered about the place which for so many years has been the chief resort for amusement to the common people who cannot often afford to treat themselves to a night at the more expensive theatres while to the children of the city barnum's has been a fountain of delight ever offering new attractions as captivating as implicitly believed in as the arabian nights entertainments theatre menagerie and museum it amused instructed and astonished if its thousands and tens of thousands of annual visitors were bewildered Sometimes with a woolly horse, a what-is-it, or a mermaid, they found repose and certainly a, a giraffe, a whale, or a rhinoceros. If wax effigies of pirates and murderers made them shudder, lest those dreadful figures should start out of their glass cases and repeat their horrid deeds they were reassured by the presence of the mildest and most amiable of giants and the fattest of mortal women, whose dead weight alone could crush all the wax figures into their original cakes. It was a source of unfailing interest to all country visitors, and New York to many of them was only the place that held Barnum's museum. It was the first thing, often the only thing, they visited when they came among us, and nothing that could have been contrived. Out of our present resources could have offered so many attractions, unless some more ingenious showman had undertaken to add to Barnum's collection of waxen criminals by putting in a cage the live boards of the Common Council. We mourn its loss, but not as without consolation. Barnum's museum is gone, but Barnum himself happily did not share the fate of his rattlesnakes and his At least, most unhappy family. There are fishes in the seas and beasts in the forest. Birds still fly in the air and strange creatures still roam in the deserts. Giants and pygmies still wander up and down the earth. The oldest man, the fattest woman, and the smallest baby are still living, and Barnum will find them or even if none of these things or creatures existed, we could trust to Barnum to make them out of hand. The museum, then, is only a temporary loss, and much as we sympathize with the proprietor, the public may trust to his well-known ability and energy to soon renew a place of amusement which was a source of so much innocent pleasure and had in it so many elements of solid excellence. As already stated, my insurance was but $40,000, while the collection at the lowest estimate was worth $400,000. And as my premium was 5%, I had paid the insurance companies more than they returned to me. When the fire occurred, my summer pantomime season had just begun, and the museum was doing an immensely profitable business. My first impulse after reckoning up my losses was to retire from active life, and from all business occupation beyond what my large real estate interests in Bridgeport and my property in New York would compel. I felt that I had still a competence and that after a most active and busy life, at 55 years, I was entitled to retirement to comparative rest for the remainder of my days. I called on my old friend, the editor of the Tribune, for advice on the subject. Accept this fire as a notice to quit and go a-fishing, said Mr. Greeley. A-fishing, I exclaimed. Yes, a-fishing. I have been wanting to go a-fishing for thirty years and have not yet found time to do so replied mr greeley i really felt that his advice was good and wise and i had consulted only my own ease and interest i should have acted upon it but two considerations moved me to pause first 150 employees many of whom depended upon their exertions for their daily bread were thrown out of work at a season when it would be difficult for them to get engagements elsewhere. Second, I felt that a large city like New York needed a good museum, and that my experience of a quarter of a century in that direction afforded extraordinary facilities for founding another establishment of the kind, and so I took a few days for reflection. Meanwhile, the museum employees were tendered a benefit at the Academy of Music, at which most of the dramatic artists in the city volunteered their services. I was called out and made some offhand remarks, in which I stated that nothing which I could utter to behalf of the recipients of that benefit could plead for them half so eloquently as the smoking ruins of the building where they had so long earned their support by their efforts to gratify the public at the same time i announced that moved by the considerations i have mentioned I had concluded to establish another museum, and that in order to give present occupation to my employees, I had engaged the Winter Garden Theater for a few weeks, and I hoped to open a new establishment of my own in the ensuing fall. The New York Sun commented upon the few remarks which I was suddenly and quite unexpectedly called upon to make in the following flattering manner. One of the happiest impromptu oratal efforts that we have heard for some time was that made by Barnum at the benefit performance given for his employees on Friday afternoon. If a stranger wanted to satisfy himself How the great showman had managed so to monopolize the ear and eye of the public during his long career, he could not have had a better opportunity of doing so than by listening to this address. Every word, though delivered with apparent carelessness, struck a key note in the hearts of his listeners. Simple, forcible, and touching, it showed how thoroughly this extraordinary man comprehends the character of his countrymen and how easily he can play upon their feelings. Those who look upon Barnum as a mere Charlton have really no knowledge of him it would be easy to demonstrate that the qualities that have placed him in his present position of notoriety and affluence would, in another pursuit, have raised him to far greater eminence. In his breadth of views, his profound knowledge of mankind, his courage under reverses His indomitable perseverance, his ready eloquence, and his admirable business tact, we recognize the elements that are conductive to success in most other pursuits. More than almost any other living man, Barnum may be said to be a representative type of the American mind. I very soon secured by lease premises, numbers 535, 537, and 539 Broadway, 75 feet front and rear by 200 feet deep, and known as the Chinese Museum Buildings. In less than four months, I succeeded in converting this building into a commodious museum and lecture room. And meanwhile, I sent agents through America and Europe to purchase curiosities. Besides hundreds of small collections, I bought up several entire museums. And with many living curiosities and my old company of actors and actresses, I opened to the public November thirteenth, 1865. Barnum's New American Museum, thus beginning a new chapter in my career as a manager and showman. End of chapter 39, part 2. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.